Hello. How are we? Other than good. Yeah, <laughs> we still also, say good. Also good. Also good. Um, I had one of those days. I uh, I spilled some tea on the iPhone today, um, and then I was like on my hands and knees with like wet wipes from my kids. It was awesome. So, to bear with me, I am feeling better. Thank you so much for it, as you prayed. I feel like kind of back to myself. We're back to Ruth at least. Um, so, anyway. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I am the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. RUF is a Christian campus ministry uh, that exists to serve this campus and you all, wherever you are and however you are. And is that gonna be as high as it goes on me? Uh, This is the pump one, hold on. There we go. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, that all is to say, RUF isn't just for one kind of person, it's for every kind of person. So we really want you to feel welcome Uh, No matter what your personal background is, no matter what your campus scene is like, uh, RUF doesn't exist for one personal background or even just a few uh, campus scenes. Uh, We just really hope that you feel welcome, whether you're not really sure about Christianity, uh, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or again, whether you think those categories don't capture it, you'd say none of the above, somewhere in between, uh, and so on. So what I'm just saying is thanks for coming. (laughs) Uh, if you're new, really appreciate you coming. Uh, I know it's a big risk and, and it's a lot of time. feels like at least on a Tuesday, so I really do appreciate that uh, sacrifice and that willingness to check us out. Okay, so we took a little detour last week, but this week we're back in it. Um, we have been looking this semester in large group at the books of Judges and Ruth and a series I'm calling Love in an R-rated World. Love in an R-rated World. Uh, We spent the first half of the semester looking at the book of Judges, which was just like a constant reminder of how R-rated or TV mature our world can be, right? I'll spare you the recap. I I love going through all the gross scenes, but I'm going to stop. not going to do that today. Uh, You can read Judges for yourself or listen to the podcast or the sermon audio. But Judges kind of like just basically highlighted the dark side of life. So tragically flawed, larger than life, leaders in a setting seething with suffering. Judges is like this truly chaotic, violent book that's summarized by this intentionally repeated repeated refrain, this phrase that goes over and over again, especially at the tail end of the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's sort of the summary capstone of the book of Judges. But look, in Judges we did see God's care, his careful and caring rescue of his people over and over and over again. But the question that uh, Ruth brings us to is what does that look like on a less grand, like a less national scale? How do ordinary people move forward in an already world? How do we at Davidson live out positive lives in the midst of so much negative stuff? Hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Jose, the violence of Charlottesville and Las Vegas, the ongoing geopolitical chaos of Kenya, Niger, Israel, Syria, and North Korea, not to mention increasingly hostile and snide political and economic environments that we live in. The book of Ruth, I would argue, teaches us how to love by inviting us into an intimate history of ordinary people acting out a very personal love in oftentimes very difficult and painful circumstances. We're all asking, what's my purpose? 
what am I put on this planet to do? Aren't we asking that? And the book of Ruth is answering these questions by pointing us to a story. It's a short but painstaking description of two widowed women and a nearly forgotten farmer. But please don't miss the book of Ruth's center, its artistic focal point. Behind people like Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, in our everyday lives that look for love and look to love, the eyes of the heart are drawn to God. He's kind of behind the scenes. A God who Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet, famously described as mysteriously at work, the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. But before we look at this love in our and Ruth's already world, would you pray with me for a minute? Father, um, I do pray that you'd be with this time, that you would center me, um, that this would be a time where we just connected, that um, these, these students connected with you wherever they are with you. Um, whether they feel rigid right now, and they're not really sure why they're here, or whether they're comfortable, like this is the safest spot they've got. Um, I pray that you'd be with me, even as I talk. I pray that you would give me your words to speak. I pray, Father, that this would be a time that would be not able to be replicated anywhere else. That your word would meet us where we are, that your son Jesus would be high and lifted up, that he would be more believable, more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, and that you'd show us a little bit about what love looks like, uh, that you'd help us to enter into some of the stuff that's going on in our lives and the stuff that's going on in our world, but you'd help us to enter into it with sort of inexpressible hope. Um, And I pray that you would be with us, teach us, calm us, uh, comfort us, but also I pray challenge us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So about halfway through my first year of graduate school, I became more and more convinced I didn't belong there. Uh, As I said last week, I went to a graduate school for future pastors. And so within a month, I realized I was the least nice person there. (laughs) Can you imagine? Uh, Some fellow students, now I would call them friends, almost overwhelmed me with their positivity. There they were, just so sincere about everything. And like everyone had like, it felt like they all grew up in perfect Christian families where their first word as a baby was yours, not mine. (laughs) Um, I mean, everyone had perfectly frosted hair and perfectly frosted teeth. Um, I expected seminary to be like this monastery. That's also part of the problem is that I expected, you know, that I'd be reading leather bound books about God by gurgling brooks and uh, comfy grass, and that every once in a while an occasional sheep would wander over, or maybe an angel, and uh, they, they would sort of they'd put their hand or, or they'd nuzzle me into a position on my back, and that we would look at the clouds together. That's what I thought <laughs> seminary would be, and it was not that way. Uh, and so I quickly realized I needed some counsel outside of myself, and so I uh, kind of connected with a former professor who had recently retired. He's sort of a legend at the seminary I went to. Um, and uh, my aunt actually hooked it up, and we, it was this, it was an incredibly awkward lunch. I just don't even know how to say it. All I can do is kind of take you there. Um, we're talking, 
And after he tells me uh, I'm spiritually dead, as he's blowing his soup <laughs> to cool it, um, he then says, and I quote, you need to do something where you nearly lose your faith. Something extremely hard. And uh, then he suggested that I visit people who are sick or dying. And so after I took his advice and divided it by four, uh, I took the remainder and I began to visit the elderly and the sick and the hospitalized members of the church I was attending at the time in Florida. Uh, the person I visited the most in that season, especially that second year, um, was a woman named Helen. Helen was 97 years old. And she was a widow. She had grown children, uh, I think even grown grandchildren, and maybe even a few great-grandchildren. Uh, I can't quite recall all the details of her life, but I do remember her room and what she said to me. It's kind of like hard not to forget the room. Uh, for most of the end of her life, she lay in this dark room in this rehabilitation slash nursing home facility, and it was a dark room only lit by like one single lamp. And so every time I entered, I was never sure if she was asleep or awake. Can you imagine that feeling? Um, but every time I visited, she was just chipper, like gr greeted me warmly, patiently endured my fumbling attempts at kindness. Remember, the least likely to be nice. And my tireless efforts at being a pastor to her, who, which, you know, if I were 97 with this guy, I would have rolled my eyes too. Uh, it quickly became clear that she was going to pastor me, that I was going to learn a little bit from her if I could just get over myself and what I was up to. <laughs> I often remember asking Helen about her family and her friends and just memories in general, which is like a beautiful thing if you've never done that with somebody in that stage of life. Um, and I would ask her at the end what I could pray for her about. And uh, Helen would grow very serious and inevitably it shocked me every time she would grab my arm <laughs> and then she'd look at me and her eyes would shake <laughs> and she would say, and, and she would look down at her legs that were crumpled underneath the covers and she would whisper, I'm ready to die, but if God wants to keep me here, I want to dance again. <laughs> I'm ready to die, but if God wants to keep me here, I want to dance again. That's what I want. Would you pray for that? Um, there's, there's still something, there was something, there is still something extremely breathtakingly honest about that moment, that prayer request. Helen was able to identify both her frail condition, but she wasn't overwhelmed by it. In the words of Frederick Buechner, reflecting on a similar experience, she saw both the light and the dark of what the world was offering her and was not split in two by them. She was whole in herself and she saw the world whole. Buechner goes on to apply the truths of Helen, the Helens of the world to us. The temptation is always to go where the world takes us, to drift with whatever current happens to be running the strongest at the time. When good things happen, we rise to heaven. When bad things happen, we descend to hell. When the world strikes out at us, we strike back. And when one way or another, the world blesses us, our spirits soar. I know this to be true of no one as well as I know it to be true of me. We are in constant danger of not being actors in the drama of our lives, but reactors in that drama. The fragmentary nature of our experience shatters us into fragments. Instead of being whole, most of the time we are in pieces, and we see the world in pieces, full of darkness at one moment and full of light at the next moment. 
So again, instead of being whole, most of the time we are in pieces and we see the world in pieces, full of darkness at one moment and full of light in the next. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we enter a story, a story of a very good and very bad world simultaneously. A world that as much is the same world as ours. And we engage our strongly mixed lives by standing with an older woman, a widow, who is struggling for wholeness. Within five verses, we see the light, marriage, children, daughters-in-law. But then we also see the dark fragments, don't we? Famine, and then a woman left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 5. And the questions of verses 6 through 14 follow quickly. Can Naomi honestly see the sadness of her life and not be overwhelmed by it? How do we really see the sadness of this world and even our short personal histories and the short personal histories of all the people that we know and not be overwhelmed by them? What is exactly wholeness? And or what would love look like in our real eyes wide open lives? According to Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, love looks like really seeing life's sadness. Love looks like God showing up in the sadness. And love looks like beginning to reimagine and restore wholeness to ourselves and to this world. Okay, so love looks like really seeing life's sadness, God showing up in that sadness. And beginning to reimagine and restore or repair wholeness to ourselves in the world. And this picture of what love looks like for Naomi and for us gives us the basic outline of what we're going to go through today. If you look on your handout, you'll see for our passage. First, according to verses 1 through 5, love looks like really seeing life's losses. It's sadness. Okay. Then we're going to look at verse 6. And their love looks like God showing up in life's very saddest places. And third and finally, according to verses 7 through 14, love looks like beginning to reimagine and restore wholeness to life, to ourselves and to others and to this world. As usual, you can find that on your handout. And as usual, we're going to start at the beginning uh, of our passage of verses 1 through 5 and look at love as really seeing life's sadness. As I said earlier, verses 1 through 5 are like the severely short summary of all the life, all the light, and all the dark that a solitary life can hold together simultaneously, right? It's this just incredible snapshot, quick motion snapshot. Sort of like the beginning of Up, that movie, right? All of a sudden, you're just hit with it. You're thinking it's a Disney movie, and here we go. I thought this was a book of the Bible. Bam! Okay, first five, five verses, the goods of family, the goods of survival, the goods of marriage are just shaded over by the notice of famine and then death. First of the death of Naomi's husband in verse three, and then the death of her two sons in verse five. If you're anything like me, uh, it's, you just kind of quickly and unemotionally run over that first verse and you passed over that word famine. Like, just quickly. Um, in verse 1, you just said famine. Okay, great. That's sort of what happens in the Bible. In a recent podcast, Malcolm Gladwell tries to break through our very 21st century American uh, visualizations. He tries to sort of show us that there's this personal aspect 
to what famine is and what famine invokes. And he does this by asking a historian whose parents lived through a 1943 famine. Gladwell asks her to read a personal description of what a famine is. And here's her best shot. In a village in India, a Muslim weaver was unable to support his family and crazed with hunger wandered away. His wife believed he had drowned himself in the flooded Kashai River. Being unable to feed her two young sons for several days, she could no longer endure their suffering. She dropped the smaller boy, torn from her womb, the sparkle of her eye, into the Kashai River's frothing waters. So when verse 1 mentions there's a famine in the land, uh, not to mention the death of spouses and children, this matter-of-fact notice ushers us into very real people's very real nightmares. And I would argue that it also ushers us into some of our greatest fears, both personal fears and international fears. And I would say part of the reason that we struggle to stop and to recognize the world's sadness is because things like famine and things like death bring up so many hard questions. Like why? Why do famine and death happen? Why did that particular famine and that, those particular premature deaths happen? The phrase in the days when the judges ruled in verse 1, gives us a strong clue about why Naomi's particular famine might have happened in Israel. And here I actually have to do a little bit of recap from Judges. I'm sorry for those of you who have been here, but we need to help the new people here. Okay, in the time of Judges, the people of God were identified with the nation of Israel, and Israel had collectively made a covenant or a vow to God. This is sometimes called the Moses' or the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, for those of you who are the theologians among us, just whip that one out at the next party. Okay. In this covenant, they vowed to worship God alone and to follow his commandments. And in return, if the nation of Israel as a whole did what they vowed, they'd receive blessings in the form of fruitful land and long life and multiple offspring. But if the Israel as a whole did not do what they had vowed or covenanted, they'd receive curses in the form of disease or foreign occupation or famine. For more on this, see the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 28 through 30, and if you're really wanting to get specific, chapter 28, verses 15 through 24 of Deuteronomy, uh, if you want to do your extra reading there. So in the book of Judges, Israel repeatedly broke their worship and holiness vows, and they therefore several times over get foreign plunder and drought, which occurs and causes famine. And so Naomi's historical famine was likely caused by Israel's worship of other gods, gods other than the Lord God, and their collective, general, vicious, violent, and self-absorbed behavior. That's sort of how that worked. Um, And that doesn't necessarily hold for today, but for more on that, you can listen to the sermon on Gideon, okay, and Judges 6 through 8. Okay, so as for the death of Naomi's husband and sons, I don't think we can exactly know why the deaths happened. Okay, so sometimes we know exactly why, and sometimes we don't know exactly why. Look, yes, Elimelech's and Naomi's decision to leave the promised land, Israel, for another land. A land, by the way, that was, had porous soil, several rivers, also called wadis, and good average rainfall, according to ancient almanacs. 
Okay. This idea of this land of Moab, what we would call modern day Jordan, still a center of refugees for maybe some of those same reasons. Um, this decision was a shrewd but morally questionable decision because after all, they, their ancestors, them as a people had given their vows to God about the land. Okay, but even more questionable is after Limelech dies, Naomi decides to marry off her two Israelite sons to non-Israelite women. The book of Genesis describes the Moabites as incestuous. That's their origin. And the book of Deuteronomy tells us that their chief god, Chemosh, required child sacrifice. Okay, so it's a pretty grim uh, marriage. But I still think it's an oversimplification to make these questionable decisions responsible for the deaths of all of these people, um, whether it's Elimelech or the two sons. And I think that uh, like most common complicated modern issues like poverty, there were likely multiple factors working in unique combinations in each case, right? Some unknown degree of circumstances and choices and maybe even genetics were at play here. After all, we don't know exactly how they even died. So how are we supposed to speculate why they died? So it gets very complicated, doesn't it? But that's like real life. But what I love about the Bible is sometimes it doesn't tell you clearly why things happen, but it does give us a clear answer about how to handle great tragedies like famine and premature death and many of the things going on in our lives. Over and over again, whether it's later in the chapter one of Ruth or in Revelation or in the book of Psalms, People, God's people see tragedies honestly, and they process them by pouring out their sadness to God. Often as a community, they're often telling God what shouldn't be. Look, we're not to blame God, but we do get to tell God how it is. We do get to, tell, to ask God, where are you? And that's the biblical um, impetus for how to handle this. And verses 1 through 5 invite us into the Bible's honest realism about how dark and sad and painful it all can be, right? But they also invite us to see, as Carolyn James puts it, that God actually pursues us in our pain. God actually pursues us in our pain. God pursues us when we get still long enough to look the darkness in its face. Whether that look is a silent acknowledgement or praying it out to God or listening to another person's pain. In the words of Steve Brown, when you face the pain, Jesus comes. Jesus hangs out around pain. And when we run from pain, we're running from Jesus. And really, verse 6 is this wondrous case in point of exactly how Jesus hangs out around pain. There we see the surprising way that God shows up in life's saddest places, which is our second point, by the way. Verse 6 tells us Naomi had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. There is like so much in just that half verse of of verse 6. The Lord personally visits Israel, a land suffering under its own accursed consequences, defeat and failure and barrenness. And the Lord comes among the self-afflicted, starving, desperate scratchers of the earth, and he gives these people what they most want and perhaps least have earned at that historical moment. Food. 
He gives them food. And then, and then God reaches out to Naomi in the fields of Moab, knee high in the midst of her highly questionable decisions and, and ba- her decisions to flee her people, to flee her land, to flee the consequences of her people and their land. And I love, verse six is such a clinic of the way that God works. Just think about it for a second. God practices grace. That's what he's about. God's business is doing good for us when there's no compelling reason to do good and every reason not to do good. That's the definition of grace. God does good for us when there's no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to do so. That's exactly what the historical situation is. And that's why the whole covenant deal that God made with Israel was worth repeating. God visited and did good for a people whom had, he had every reason to shun. And God did this grace to Israel and then to Naomi in this like mysterious way. He visited it in such an ordinary way that many might have missed it. God brought rain. He brought rain to a dried up, sun-stroked field. And he told Naomi about it by the words of someone else's mouth. God sent this ordinary somebody to Naomi in her real life desolation. Added to the grief and the pain of it all, three widows were in the male-dominated ancient Near East and they had no physical protection, no economic viability, and no social status in that time. And God shows up. And so all this leads me to ask some personal questions, if I can. Where is the, where is the painful darkness you and I struggle to sit in? Is it our own or is it someone else's? Is the agony some combination of choices, circumstances, genetics? Can we stay in that thought or that feeling or that conversation long enough for the Lord to visit us there? Will we trust that God, that Jesus' covenant-keeping life and his covenant-accursed death actually guarantees that God means us good? That's our guarantee that our lives are actually not the mere sum of our good and bad choices. That God shows up mysteriously. He shows up mysteriously in surprising and ordinary ways. (laughs) So it's story time. (laughs) About a year ago or so, a friend of mine, Mike, fell off a ladder, (laughs) okay? He was pretty high up and he landed really hard on his side and so he did what's sensible when you get older. He went to the ER uh, just to make sure everything was okay. He kind of was sore. His dad was just bruised. It wasn't a big deal. They did an x-ray just to be safe, just to make sure there was no broken bones or whatever. And they discovered a massive tumor on Mike's kidney. Like it would be for all of us, this news absolutely shook Mike to the core and nearly buried him in fear. He asked himself if he'd lose his job. He asked himself if he'd ever be able to do his job again at the highest level or even at all. He asked himself if he would be able to give away his 10 and 13 year old daughters in marriage. He asked himself if he would ever get to teach his five year old son how to shave. He was forced to face the sadness and to see that the sadness that cancer can bring. But then he told me about the surprising and ordinary ways that God said, I will be with you. 
family at his side, neighbors he didn't know well, church acquaintances that he really didn't connect with, all showing up to pray over him, to put their hands on him, to whisper over him, to shout over him. The surgery of success, a hollowed out feeling from losing a kidney, but the cancer he would never have known about if he had not fallen from a ladder, removed completely. And then the most surprising thing of all, an older woman in his church visits Mike immediately after they've removed the kidney. And she leans over, she grabs both sides of Mike's face, and in the presence of his wife, lays a kiss on his lips so hard and so wet that all Mike could do is gasp. And she says to him, hands, his face still in her hands, I love you, Mike. He's telling me this story, and he sees my face, and he goes, don't worry, it wasn't what you thought it was. This wasn't some sort of adulterous confession. Instead, Mike, and saw, Mike saw and heard from Jesus in that moment. The Lord had visited his hospital bed in the most ordinary form. But the Lord did and said the most surprising thing he could think of. You see, God didn't answer Mike's fears. He didn't answer his sadness. He didn't answer his prayerful complaints with an explanation. Instead, God sent a relationship. Just a single person. But what a person. This was a reality that Naomi would have begun to understand in verse 14. Because you see, God didn't explain why the three loves of her life died. He sent Ruth to cling to Naomi. And it's the same for us. In the darkest places and the saddest times in life, God oftentimes does not choose to explain his ways. He doesn't send you a card. He doesn't send you a note. God sends a person. First, he sent a person of the Godhead 2,000 years ago. And perhaps even this week, he's sending you or me. And that's really the gist of my third point. Before I get too far ahead of myself and go past verse 14, love looks like beginning to reimagine and restore wholeness of life for other people. When Naomi hears of God's visit, of his still burning love for her, and his still unquenchable kindness for her distant friends and her distant family, Naomi begins to reimagine her identity, reimagine who she is. She begins to see herself as an Israelite of the people of God who belongs in Israel once again. And then Naomi begins to try and to return to who she is and to literally go back to where she came from. In the words of verse 7, so she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The word for return is this word shub in the Hebrew It's the same word that's used over and over and over again in the Old Testament to describe when the Israelites turn back to God. It's a word that we would theologically translate as repentance. So given the context and given that word's usage over and over again, I would say 
that Naomi's also not just acting out a physical return trip to Judah. She's acting out the, a spiritual return trip to God. And God visits, pushes Naomi to see that the sharp knife of her painful circumstances pushes her to see those things, that sharp knife, differently. That knife is not held by a murderer. That knife is not held by a thief. It is held by a good and gracious God. He is the chief surgeon, cutting away all that's cancerous. Or to switch metaphors, Naomi hesitantly trusted God Allowed, allowing her circumstances to be the way they are, like a great sculptor moves a chisel across the surface of a stone to carve away everything that Naomi's not intended to be. Like Michelangelo is said to have carved away every edge that was not his David. And this is how God creates wholeness in us. An integrity Frederick Buechner also describes as being always and remarkably and invariably oneself, living out of some deep center that is beyond the reach of circumstance. Integrity is always and remarkably and invariably oneself, living out of some deep center that is beyond the reach of circumstance. And this sense that God is putting something right in her, visiting and providing for her amidst her sadness, moves Naomi to do the same for Orpah and for Ruth. In verses 8 through 9, Naomi takes her eyes off of herself and realizes that she's dragging her daughters-in-law a week's journey away from where they're from. And so Naomi uh, does what Paul Miller calls a stubborn kind of love. Love without an exit strategy. She says this, Go, return each of you to her return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Do you see what Naomi is doing here? Naomi is giving up any hope of physical, economic, or social security. So that Orpah and Ruth can actually have that hope. So that they can have a hope of economic and, phys- and physical and, and social security in their lives. But, you know, Orpah and Ruth realize exactly what Naomi's doing, how self-cutting, how self-sacrificial that is, and they push back and they refuse that generosity in verse 10. And so Naomi doubles down and she delivers what might be the most blisteringly logical case for what is sensible to do and for two Moabite women in the ancient Near East. And that's, that became a less and less grand statement as we went. <laughs> Most logical case for two Moabite women in the ancient Near East. So essentially, Naomi says this, I've got nothing. I've got nothing for you. God isn't done chiseling me. So go back to your matchmaker mothers and start again. Find a good man from Moab. And both these women weep in that recognition of what that Naomi's right. She's got this realism. Okay, But notice that Orpah kisses off while Ruth forsakes her 20-something eligible bachelorette status and clings to Naomi. We'll explore Ruth's love and why and how she clings to Naomi next week more, but I want us just to stand with Naomi at the Jordanian crossroads for a moment or two, if we could. Naomi's acknowledging that she isn't a president. 
She's not even a relief worker, a manager, or even a pastor for that matter. She's not powerful or professional enough to change the system. She can't promise outcomes. But Naomi's offering what she has. Her chance at comfort for their chance at comfort. Her counted on security and significance so that they can count on security and significance in Moab. And it's a hope I think is captured beautifully by this newspaper clipping that someone sent me this summer. Like, it's really hard to describe, but it's a picture of an ordinary man in a striped shirt bending low with what looks like a watering can in his hand. He's bent low over an herb garden, and the garden is this patch of green on a rooftop that's amid all these rooftops of rubble, and it hangs like slightly suspended across from this four-story concrete slab building that has collapsed at a 45-degree angle. And I'm going to ask Sarah to put this out for a second. So... This is, the, this is the image, okay? And the caption in the newspaper reads, a Syrian waters herbs on his roof. Friday, in the Syrian rebel-held town of Arbin, on the outskirts of Damascus. The latest round of Syrian peace talks ended Friday with no progress toward reaching a political solution to end the six-year war, but with plans to reconvene later this month. Look, Naomi, you, me, we're just not diplomats in the Syrian peace talks. At least not yet for some of you. Maybe some of you will be. And life, our life, others' lives, the world's life, sometimes feels like a rubble, like a bomb-blasted building, doesn't it? But Naomi is challenging us. God's grace and his mysterious ways are comforting us into towards a love like this ordinary Syrian man in the striped shirt. At Davidson, you're preparing to perhaps make a worldwide, systemically significant difference. And what you're studying is extremely important to make that difference a significant difference. I totally buy that. But what do you do in the meantime? How do you love people here in the hall? or in the locker room, or in the library? Or how do you love people in your first job when you're not in charge of anything and you're not even a manager? Naomi's life suggests a radical way to love that might feel as futile and hopeful as planting an herb garden in a shelled Syrian rebel-held town. What would it look like to give what's precious to you to others? Let's start with your time. Or instead of walking across campus, or in my case, in my neighborhood, or anything RUF-related, and asking the question, where do I fit in? Or what in-group can I get in? What if we actually asked, who's lonely that I can hang out with? What if we actually asked, who can I invite into what part of my life? You see, Frederick Beekner doesn't just define wholeness as the ability to see the world whole, both darkness and light in life at the same time, nor is it merely being always and remarkably, invariably oneself. Beekner also describes wholeness as losing sight of one's predicament by focusing on other people. Losing sight of one's predicament by focusing on other people. 
And ultimately, that's the call of love for us. To love wholly, to see and to work towards that kind of integrity. But what motivates and empowers small-scale, real-world efforts at love is the God who loved us first. You've got to see that Jesus intimately knows the world's gladdest and saddest moments. He lived them. The Christ, who is always remarkably invariably himself, whether he's around a Middle East diplomat politician named Pontius Pilate, or he's around the ordinary herb gardeners like most Israelites. Jesus, who lost sight of the pain and the shame of the cross, for the joy of us set before him. The Jesus who visits dried out dreams and hospital beds, and he kisses us full on on the lips. Would you pray with me? Father, um, this image is just haunting <laughs> to me. Uh, the futility, the 